As we continue our way through the book of Mark, we'll start this morning at Mark 14, if you'll follow with me, starting at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that you are holy, 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 as we sung this morning, that you are beyond us, uh, that you have made us, and even in our rebellion against you, you have shown grace, patience, and compassion, remained righteous and holy and faithful. I pray you would encourage our hearts this morning, that you would give us endurance and hope that you would sanctify by your word, that you would work as we are given knowledge in our minds, that your spirit would interpret to our hearts, that you would sanctify and change our lives, not just for our good, but for your name and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, as we continue in the book of Mark, at chapter 14, uh, as I said, starting in verse 26, uh, it is a, a joy to look at the gospel of Mark together as we slowly work our way through it and kind of rapidly come to the end of it. I want to remind you the context of where we are. Uh, starting at chapter 11 of Mark, we are functioning in the last week of Jesus's life. And as you read the Gospels, it's important to remember the Gospels are not a biography of Jesus. The Gospels are not written to give you his life story and what motivated him and what brought him where he is and his parents and his background and where he came from in the way a biography does. The Gospels are a declaration of the Gospel of Christ. They are a declaration of the person of Christ, what he has accomplished. And in that, we see the Gospels focus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all focusing the bulk of their time of his life into this last week. As you read the Gospels, more than half, I believe, of the content of the Gospels is this last week of Jesus' life. Because this is a significant week. This is a week of the declaration of the plan and the purpose of Christ. The gospel, again, is not a history of the life of Jesus. It is a proclamation of the gospel, the good news, the accomplishment, the promise fulfilled in Christ. And so as we look at it, when we think about context, really from chapter 11 on, we're looking at this last week of Jesus's life. And what we see in this life is Jesus continually proclaiming to his disciples that the religious rulers and the Romans will come and they will kill him. He will be suffering or beaten. He will be crucified. And in three days, he will raise again. And we see his disciples failing to take that seriously. 
They assume it's metaphor. They assume he's speaking of something else. They assume it's a bad plan. They assume he's not God. They might, are making all kinds of assumptions. We don't have the thoughts and ideas of the apostles written out for us. What we have is again and again, Jesus proclaiming that truth and his disciples either denying it, confused by it, or immediately turning from it to fight with each other about who is the greatest. And in this last week of Jesus's life, there is much affliction going on in his life. As we sung this morning and read this morning about our affliction and that God would use that for us, I think often we don't consider the fact that affliction, persecution, difficulty in life is a time to lean into Christ. You could say to find encouragement in Christ, to find comfort in Christ, to find the love of Christ, to participate in the spirit of Christ, meaning to lean into that difficulty or that frustration or that adversity or that consequence of sin and trust that Christ is faithful. He's your savior. Not to live in sin. I think what's common for us under affliction and difficulty is to resort to what we know outside of Christ, and that is sin. Sin is not your savior. Do not believe the lies of sin because sin will do two things to you. You will be deceived in two ways. You will lean into affliction and saying, vengeance is mine rather than vengeance is God's. You will say, wrath will satisfy me. Anger will accomplish what I want. Immorality will give me the pleasure that I need. Gossip will free me from the spirit that I feel. Drunkenness will deliver me from the pressure around me. And then, after you have been deceived once, the later deception is now, Christ can't save you. What kind of sinner are you? They would get drunk in your troubles. They would commit immorality. They would gossip. They would slander. They would live in anger and frustration. They would be malicious and deceitful. Sin is not your savior. Sin is our life before Christ. Christ is our savior. Christ, and because of Christ, you have, again, comfort, love, encouragement, hope, participation to meet adversity, to meet difficulty, to meet temptation, to meet the consequences of sin in this life and say, Christ has saved me. I can turn from that. I can live faithful. I can share with the saints the mind of Christ that says God's will is better than my desires. And as we look at this passage this morning, I think you will be helped to see one, the hope that because of Christ, you can meet temptation, you can meet difficulty and turn to sanctification rather than sin. Because of Christ, when there is adversity in your life, when there is failure in your life, when there is persecution in your life, you can choose in Christ, not in your own will, in Christ to be sanctified rather than to sin. 
or as James says it, to bear under the weight of trials, that the man of God may be matured. But at times, like Peter in our passage this morning, rather than to lean what you know is true in Christ, you will lean into what you know from your previous life, and you will choose to ignore the words of Christ and to live in sin. And you find yourself there this morning. I want to remind you the lies of sin is that then you could not be saved by Christ. But the righteousness of Christ is on display in these Gospels. That he, through adversity and affliction, did not give in to sin. He remained faithful and righteous. Just consider, what would you do before men who you knew were planning to murder you? Would you teach, instruct, rebuke, clarify? Or would you cry out for their murder? What would you do before crowds that you knew were not metaphorically, but literally praising Christ at his entry into Jerusalem and crying out for Christ to be crucified just a few days later? What would you do knowing that a deceitful, thieving disciple was plotting to betray you? What would you do if your closest disciples, those who are yours and you would call them yours and they would call you theirs, fail to understand your teaching, fail to understand your words and proclaim devotion but are often confused and fervent in emotion but all about to flee from you? What do you do when you're called to live in love for others that you know are sinful? That when they act in sin against you or against others, what is your response? Maybe sometimes you respond in the spirit. You respond in the hope of Christ. You respond knowing that Christ has paid for your sin. And if they are Christ's, he has paid for their sin. And you do not bring about the vengeance of sin. And you do not bring about sin because sin begets sin. But you live to be sanctified. You meet anger with patience. You meet immorality with clarity and love and calls to repentance. You meet gossip with turning the other cheek. You meet your drunken, vulgar neighbor with love and truth in Christ, praying for his salvation. You meet your coworker who is sexually immoral and lost in the thoughts of the world with the truth and kindness and affection, recognizing man is identified by their creation as God's image, not by what they claim as their identity. How can you love children when they're disobedient in sin? How can you love your spouse when they fail to meet the commandments of their role? Not just your expectation, but the commandments of God. How can you love other church members when they act in sin or offend you? Our first response is we can't. We just depend on Christ. We're going to act in sin. And yes, sometimes we might choose the flesh. 
But in Christ, we have hope that he has freed us from the penalty and the power of sin. And though the presence of sin remains, we can have endurance. He also comforts us of when you look at your life and you know you have not. You have failed to. As John says, when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. I don't have a solution of how you can stop sinning completely and just live in holiness. All I have is the hope of Christ, only in Christ, never perfectly, but always with our eyes on our perfect Savior, not the deception of sin. Are we empowered by him? Only then will we be able to see the sins of others and think more clearly about the sins of ourselves and show mercy and grace and forgiveness and clarity in truth. Only then can we live not only in repentance, but in reconciliation because of the hope of Christ that he in perfect righteousness has paid the penalty of sin. Only in his holiness and his perfection is the true character of God shown. Christ the righteous. And so the point of this passage this morning is is not primarily be like Jesus and don't be like Peter. Though that is true, you should live like Jesus and not live like Peter. You, Christian, have far more relationship in your responses to Peter than you do to Christ. But you have far more hope than Peter had in that moment that you can live like Christ. You can place your hope in Christ. But the goal is to display the perfect holiness of Christ where you as a man and a woman can understand the pressures of outside life, the difficulties combined with your own sin and the sin of others that cause you to give in to temptation, to deception, and to respond in sin. And you can see here in this passage Christ's faithfulness that in all adversity, all temptation, all failure, that most intimately to him, He ran faithful to to God and to himself as he is God to fulfill the plans and purposes of God. So let's look together at that, starting again at verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What do we see here? We see three things. If you look at your handout or look at the verses in verse 27, we see the sad truth of the coming events. After they have sung a song, uh, probably Psalm 118, which interestingly enough proclaims the goodness of God, that his love endures forever, that he is faithful We don't know what he's saying. Our only guesses is that is speculation that Jesus practiced the the Passover in the way that Jews practiced the Passover. Um, But that's all speculative. There's no instructions in Exodus or Deuteronomy or any of those books that instruct Passover to be handled the way that we put together. It's historically handled. There's instructions about what they're to remember, but their actions is speculative. But 
assuming that Christ followed somewhat that pattern that was practiced by the Jews. They sing of God's enduring love in Psalm 118 and that he is faithful. And then he proclaims to his disciples, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. First, the sad truth that after singing, now he is making sure it's known to them, not speculating the possibility, but declaring the truth, the reality of what's coming. They will fall away or they will. The Greek word is scandalize. Flee. They will offend. They will run from Christ. Christ doesn't say this on his own authority alone. Uh, he says it from the authority of the word of God, the authority of that which was written by the power of the spirit, planned and purposed by the father, and the son and the spirit to be what would come in providence. That his disciples, the sheep would be scattered, that they would fall, run and Christ knows that the Messiah will alone pay for the sins of his people. He knows that his disciples are not going to come with him. He knows that he will be bearing this burden. And it's what leads to point two, the sovereign truth of the coming events. Not just the sad truth of what the disciples will do, but that is a sovereign truth. God has already declared it. Zechariah 13 declares this, that the sheep will be scattered when the shepherd is struck. It goes on to declare that there will not just be the scattering of the sheep, but there will be restoration and reconciliation of the sheep. That some will be removed, but there will be those who are restored. The disciples aren't considering the context of where Jesus is quoting, but I think it's important for us to see Christ, who is the living word of God. When he is seeking to make known to his disciples what is true, what does he do? He says, it is written. Jesus doesn't say, I have the impression. He doesn't say, God spoke to me. He doesn't say a lot of things that he could. He chooses his words and he chooses to say, it is written. God has declared this would come about. It's not a shock to Christ, but it does bring him sorrow. He knows he depends on the will of God, the Father. And while in righteous emotion, we will see next week, he is sorrowful because of what is coming. But God is faithful despite the disciples' failure. Because he has proclaimed, it will not be the work of men, it will not be the function of men, it will be the punishment, the penalty, it will be the Messiah, the son who will bear the ransom for many. He will pay the penalty. And so in sorrow, Christ prepares his disciples for their coming failure. He also does so with salvific truth. Verse 27, we see the sad truth. We see that he rests in that because of the sovereign truth. And look with me at verse 28. It's also a salvific truth. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Christ doesn't leave the statement with the despair of their action. He communicates the hope of God's plan. 
He doesn't just tell his disciples, you are going to fail. He says, you are going to fail. You are going to offend. You're going to scandalize. You're going to flee. And after I am risen, I will go before you to Galilee. Christ tells them again what he has told them in the past in fewer words. That he is going to suffer and die. That he will pay the penalty for sin. They are going to flee. They are going to scatter. But when he pays the penalty for sin, three days later, he will rise. He will go before them to Galilee. That they could hear those words and have hope. They could hear those words and be humbled. Right? And remember in context, the disciples just a few hours, probably four to six hours before, as they're sitting together at a meal, the Passover, and then instituting communion, Christ tells them, one of you will betray me. And you remember at that point, a disciple says, is it me? And it says all of them, one after the other, asked the same question, right? They were all humble in that moment to say, could it be me? Could I be the one? Could I fall away? And we see here now, a matter of hours later, as Christ makes clear of their actions and what they will do, the response is not, Lord, how, how could I? Lord, help me. Why, what, what do I do? Why would I? The response we see from Peter is that he denies Christ's declaration of his denial. As Peter hears the words of Christ, Peter's first reaction is, he must be wrong. There's no way that could work. There's no way that'd be me. I wouldn't do that. And we see that in the way Peter responds. His heart is revealed in how he chooses his mouth. Look at verse 29. Peter denies that he will deny first. In verse 29, Peter's comparison. Peter first compares himself to others. <clears throat> Verse 29, he says, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter's comparison is not the general type of comparison we think about naturally right now, I think. When, when we talk about comparison, don't compare yourself to others. We have a lot of conversation about that right now because of social media. A lot of telling people, like, don't compare your lives to others. You're just seeing glimpses of their life. You're seeing parts of their life. You're seeing a very manicured and communicated what they want you to know. Don't set your expectations by that. We talk about, you know, to young girls and, and to men, don't look at the impression of others. Don't compare yourself to them. We're communicating to them their value. We're saying don't compare yourself to others because you're thinking you're worthless compared to them, right? That's not the kind of comparison that Peter's making. Peter's not looking at others and saying, I'm so ugly and I don't have time and I'm, my relationships aren't great and my kids aren't perfect and my life's not a, a, a continual vacation. No, Peter's looking at the other disciples and he's saying, I won't do what they will do. I won't be like them. It's not comparison in that he looks and says, I'm not worthy enough. He looks and he says, I'm better than them. Right? 
And I would encourage you, social media probably starts the same arguments in your hearts too. Right? You look and you judge and you think, I would do better. That heart is revealed by Peter. It's declared by Christ in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, or the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus tells a parable to display to people their unrighteousness. He says in Luke 18, starting at verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What is his prayer? I thank you that I am not like them because I am better than them. Then Jesus brings another man, man that would be despised by them, a tax collector, verse 13 of Luke 18. He says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Peter chooses the path of the Pharisee. He chooses to look at the other disciples and say they're not bold enough. They're not brave enough. They're not faithful enough. They don't have the courage I do, the knowledge I do, whatever it is that causes Peter to look at them and say, even if they all fall away, not me, Lord, not me. Peter, first, rather than looking to Christ, looks to men. Rather than hearing the words of Christ, Peter, this is who you are. He says it collectively, disciples, this is what you are going to do. But Peter hears, yes, that might be true for most people. I mean, look at John. That dude's not going to fight anybody. But I'm Peter. I'm the rock, remember? Interesting, as you look at the other Gospels, when Jesus responds to him, he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon. But here... Jesus answers him and he says, And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter makes the comparison. Christ, in providence and here, prophetically in proclamation, prepares for Peter an opportunity, an affliction, in where he will be sanctified. He will know the man he is. If you're not familiar, we will get there. You can read in the Gospels. Peter will not only deny Christ three times, but he will deny Christ to a little girl who says, aren't you one of them? She lumps him back to the very disciples he was willing to compare himself to and say, they might, but I won't. And she says, aren't you just one of them? Peter will be humbled. John tells us Peter is also restored in a very gracious way that I'm not preaching on this morning, but I would encourage you to look in how Peter is restored and the times and the words God chooses for Christ to say to him in his restoration. But here, Peter fails. Peter, without eyes on Christ, with his eyes on the other disciples, 
compares his endurance, his faithfulness, what he will do, what he will accomplish, like the Pharisee. He says, if others aren't even doing what I do, of course I'm fine. Of course I won't. First, Peter compares. Then Peter denies knowledge. He has zeal, but he has zeal without knowledge. Rather than compare, Peter moves to denying what Christ has said with fervency. Christ comes and says, And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you, Peter, not all of you, you, Peter, you will deny me three times. But Peter says emphatically, he doesn't just passively say it. He doesn't mutter under his breath. Not, not me. No, Peter says with emotion and desire and clarity, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter has a zeal. He has a deep concern, a, an incredible devotion to Christ. Peter has this burning in him that, no, this won't happen. He's looking at the face of Christ and he's saying, no, I love you. They might all, but even if I have to die with you, I will die with you. But it's a zeal that is refusing to rest under the knowledge of God. It is a passion that is denying the passion of Christ. That is the true payment that will give Peter boldness and courage and freedom from the power and the penalty of sin. Peter's zeal is misplaced. He has a zeal, but he has a zeal that is not according to knowledge. He has a zeal with an eye on himself. He has a zeal on what he will do and he will accomplish. It's a similar zeal that Paul speaks of as the problem with the religious, but those who will not bow to Christ. Romans 10, as he speaks of the current state of the Jews, he says in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they submit they, sorry, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does Paul say of their zeal? They, they have a zeal. They have a desire. They have passion. They have fervor. What they lack is knowledge. Their zeal is not according to knowledge. But what does he mean? Does he mean they just need to be more educated? Does, does he mean they just need more information? Well, yes, but they need specific information. Romans 10, chapter 10, verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They knew the requirements of God. They knew the commands of God. They knew what God demanded. They knew what He had said would be done. And they in zeal assumed we can do it. 
They did not have a knowledge of the righteousness of God, though he was clear with them that his holiness was beyond their holiness. As we look in the book of Joshua and it says, as for me in my house, I will serve the Lord. And all the people say with him, yes, we are making that choice. And Joshua says to them, you cannot. The moon and the stars will stand against you because you cannot. Not without the Messiah, not without the hope of God, not without his righteousness. Peter has a zeal. He has a passion. He speaks boldly. He speaks clearly. And he speaks foolishly. Because he ignores what God has clearly said. His zeal, his passion will not save him. It is a zeal that is ignorant to the righteousness of Christ. A zeal that is looking to establish by his own thoughts, his own ideas, his own history, his own past, his own information, what will be right. When Jesus has declared right before him, no, Peter, not just them, you. But Peter, in passion and zeal, without knowledge, misplaces his passion and zeal. Peter's zeal is better than what is real in him. He's more passionate about what he believes in that moment to be true than he is to have the clarity to listen to what Christ has said is true. Peter could have revealed a different heart, right? Peter reveals a heart of pride. Peter reveals a heart that looks at others and says, you can't do this, but I can Peter could have shown a different kind of zeal, ignoring Christ. When Christ says, you will fail, Peter, Peter could have said, you know what? You're right. We can do this together, disciples. We can take this on. We're strong enough. Yes, alone, we're nothing. But in community and together, we can move forward. Stand together, united, and we will accomplish. Peter, again, would have ignored the statements of Christ. He would have denied who Christ says he is and instead leaned on himself and others. Peter chooses to act without knowledge. And the Proverbs are clear to us. Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. To have a desire, to have life, to have wants, to have things you're going after without knowledge from God is not good. And you will make quick decisions and you will move yourself in directions that are foolish. You will miss the way. Peter could have considered Proverbs 29. Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than him. Peter could have considered the Proverbs that would say it is better to listen to hear. He could have listened to again and again the Proverbs, not that declare knowledge puffs up, but knowledge is from God. To hear, to learn, to know, to gain wisdom, to gain understanding, to hear what God has said and be changed. And Peter instead is zealous without knowledge. Peter's zeal 
is not lost on the other disciples. Notice at the end of the passage, verse 31. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. The disciples joined Peter's zeal and his example without knowledge. They declare with him. Peter in pride, and and we know from the other Gospels, under the persecution of Satan, under the pressures of the world, and his own desires, chooses sinful action. He chooses to deny the word of God before him, to deny what God has declared in the Old Testament, to deny the words of the living Messiah before him, to correct the Messiah that he knew better again in his life. And he does so, not passively, but he does so in leadership. Throughout the Gospels, we see Peter is a man who leads. We see it continue into the book of Acts. Peter leads. He leads with his words. He leads with his actions. And often, his words will contradict his actions. Peter speaks better than he knows and better than he does. And I think it's encouraging because we could have expectation for Peter's perfection here. Right? You could read this and just go, Peter, didn't you hear Jake's sermon? How dumb are you? Why would you compare yourself to the other disciples? Like, don't we know better than to live in comparison? Peter, you heard not only once, but twice, and then directly to you the command that this is who you are without Christ. This is what will happen. How could you, Peter? We could have expectation on Peter's perfection, but the point here is not Peter's perfection. The point here is not us seeing the failure of Peter and saying, Peter might deny, but not me. Peter might have failed, but I have knowledge. Let that knowledge humble you to rest as Peter rests in his only hope, Christ. Rather, we must reflect not on the failure of Peter, expecting that we would do different. We must reflect on the goodness and the kindness of Christ, despite the failure of his apostles. The ongoing endurance Christ knew That it was not their attentiveness, not their intuition, not their longing, not their desire, not their endurance that would save them. But he who would pay the penalty for their sin. I alluded to it earlier. As we think of Christ, we find encouragement. We find comfort from the love of Christ. We find participation in the Spirit of Christ. We find affection and sympathy from Christ. We are given in Christ the same mind or the same unity, the same intention to find others more significant than ourselves. To be in one accord. It's not talking about a Honda. It's talking about being bound. One direction, one action. In Christ, we have participation with Him. We can have the encouragement of Him that He is faithful. Because 
He is faithful. That encouragement to us that we can look at Peter and see, even if I have failed, even when I fail, even if others are failing me, when I have lived in sin, when I can't find the strength to go on, I do not have to look and compare others. I do not have to pull up the self-will and proclaim, I can do this. I can rest on Christ that he has done what he said and accomplished it. Look with me at Philippians 2 at the top of your handout. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, under all of the affliction, under all of the persecution, under all of the unfaithfulness of others, remain faithful. He put others before himself. He, being God, did not come and destroy the Pharisees. He did not damn and declare all men dead. He came in grace, in mercy. He humbled himself, not coming in the wrath of God, but coming in the form of man to pay the penalty of man's sin. And being found in human form, he was completely obedient, completely righteous, completely faithful. Not just as long as he could bear it until someone else's sin was too much for him. Not just occasionally when he was thinking in the spirit and not in the flesh. Not just sometimes, always. Perfectly in righteousness to the point of not that it hurt so bad, not not to the point of just that, as we will look next week, he is in frustration and sorrow because he knows what is coming. And what does he commit himself to? He does not give in to temptation. He says, not what I want, but what you want, your will. He faithfully lived for the glory of God in perfect righteousness as a man because you could not. And in grace and love, rather than condemn you, He has called you and He has saved you. 
And it is why we don't look to raise our name. We don't look to exalt ourselves. We don't compare ourselves to those around us. We don't tell ourselves, I would do this even if it cost my life. Knowing that any hope we have of doing anything for Christ that would cost us our life is because He gave our li His life for us. Because our hope is fully rested in Him. The moral of the story is not, be a Jesus, not a Peter. It's you are Peter. Put your hope in Christ. Rest in Him. He is faithful in a way you could not be. And He has been faithful as He promised that He will sanctify His people for His own possession, that you will live righteously in a way you could not. Not by your willpower, not because you're better than others, and not because you're better together, because Christ is better, because Christ is faithful. I want to encourage you this week to look at the application and, and seek to read these passages and apply where you need to and what you've seen of Christ. Consider the sovereign salvation of Christ and the great blessing it is for you. What is true of you? Uh, what is true of you know because of salvation? That's confusing. What is true of you that you know because of salvation with Christ has accomplished? You can correct that for me. And what was true of you because of sin in the world? And those passages will help you to see that. Consider how, like Peter, you might be quick to compare yourself to others and to lose sight of Christ. Well, look at those passages that would compel you not to live like the Pharisee, but to humble yourself like the publican. To live as one who uses their faithfulness from Christ for the good of others and to restore others and to care for them. And Galatians will warn you, not so your eyes would be on yourself. You stand before God. And Philippians 2, which we looked at this morning. And then, like Peter, consider the necessity of humility in your leadership. I am often concerned, and, and you probably hear me pray it on Sundays, that my passion about preaching and about Christ and what He's accomplished does not accomplish the work of Christ. It might be true in me. It might be genuine. But my passion is not what drives us. It is the Spirit of God. And many of you lead. You, you might not preach on Sunday as I am, but like me, you lead families, you lead others, you lead co-workers. And in your leadership, you must consider you are dependent upon Christ, not your passion, not your zeal, not your ability to rally and to get others to follow you. We've seen two examples of that in the last couple weeks. Judas and him rallying the disciples to turn against Christ when Mary is giving the oil. And here, Peter, who's not the betrayer, but is one who has betrayed, rallying the disciples that they have it within themselves to be faithful. And in both scenarios, all it takes is one man raising his voice in a way that others will follow. And they do follow. Leadership is a responsibility, not a right. Men, as you lead your family, choose your words carefully. 
Ladies, as you lead your children and other women, choose your words carefully. Depend upon Christ. Trust in His faithfulness. Speak from what you know is true with zeal. But don't just speak from zeal. Speak from knowledge. I went a little further in that one because that's been a big application for me uh, just the last decade or so. But let me pray. And I will leave you with these passages uh, to review and to consider, to think about this week together and alone. And I pray that it will encourage you to rest your hope fully in Christ wherever you find life. To put your hope fully in Christ, whatever adversity is before you, whatever sin is behind you, that you would trust He is righteous and faithful. He has proven it. He has declared it. He has recorded it in the Gospels, and He has made it known by all by rising from the dead. Lord, we thank You that we are not dependent upon our own desires, our own emotion. We're not dependent upon our own thoughts and our own will. We're not dependent upon our wants. We're not dependent upon our community. We're not dependent upon our possessions. Not dependent upon our pleasure. Not dependent upon our own pride and our own self-worth. All of those things are either gifts to remind us of your faithfulness or burdens that tempt us to flee from you. I pray, Father, you would help us to lean into the righteousness of Christ. That we would have a zeal and it would be a zeal that is informed in knowledge of your righteousness and your righteousness imparted as Daniel reminded us only from Christ. Pray that you would do this, Father, this morning in our hearts and ongoing in a way that we will not see for your people until you return. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.